Father God, we thank you for the truth of your of the things that we have sung. That we can trust in your faithfulness and know that you will hold us fast. That you have bought us at the price of the blood and life of the God man. And that we are secure in him. And Father, that it is true, all we have is Christ, and there is nothing at all that we could need beyond that. And so, Father, as we look to your word, we ask that uh, we would respond to these truths in seeking to apply your word to our lives. And so we ask that by the power of your spirit, we would do so and that we would seek to honor you through the, the living out of your word and that it would take root and effect in every aspect of our lives for your glory. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, we're going to continue the, uh, the section we started last week, the section that goes from the subsection, that goes from verse 1 through verse 8 in chapter 3. And we're going to focus here this morning on verses 5 through 8. As you turn there, I want you to, to think about if you've ever had someone put words in your mouth. If they, they claimed that you said something that you did not say or that you meant something that you did not mean. And when that happened, if it happened to you, how much did you love that? <laughs> Probably not so much, right? Especially if it's deliberate, as someone intends to oppose you. Uh, maybe they don't like something about you. They don't like what you do. Or, or they don't like something you've said. Maybe something you said struck a nerve with them. And so they want to show that you are wrong. And so they deliberately misrepresent you and your position. They deliberately draw wrong conclusions to justify their stand against you. Uh, there are many pastors who have discussed how this has happened to them and, and the different occasions uh, in which this has happened. It has happened to me more than once. But whether or not it's happened to you, there's a good chance that at some point it may happen to you. And so we should ask the question, how do you respond to something like that? How do you respond to people who do such things? Especially when it comes to the teaching of God's Word and the truth that we hold to from the Scriptures. As we stand on the truth of God's word, when someone represents where we stand, what do we do? Change where we stand? Hold to a different, less controversial teaching? Or what? Well, I think the Apostle Paul leaves us with a good example to follow when it comes to such things. As he addresses false conclusions and false accusations towards his teaching, towards the truth that God revealed and gave to him to proclaim. And so I, I think we should follow his example that we see here in this text. And, and as we go through this text, uh, again, we, we've seen Paul continues to defend the gospel, uh, defend that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And it's the power of God because in it, the righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. And so as we've been going through Romans, as we, we went through chapter one, Paul was showing there how the Gentiles are all without righteousness. And then we got into chapter 2, and there Paul started to address the Greek or the Jew moralist 
who would think themselves morally superior to those who practice the things that Paul went over in chapter 1. And Paul showed there how those moralists were really just as morally bankrupt as those they judged as morally bankrupt. And that was a transition point in the text that we saw, where Paul was moving from addressing the unrighteousness of the Gentiles to then addressing the unrighteousness of the Jews. And that's the section we remain in even as we go through these verses today. And so in all of this, Paul has been showing <clears throat> how the Jews have put their hope in things that are actually a false hope. As they had not kept God's law, which is God's standard of righteousness. And mere possession of the law. And the outward religiosity, uh, like what's seen in circumcision. All of that lost its meaning when they did not keep the law out of a changed heart. Paul said that it is the doers of the law that will be justified before God. So if one does not do what the law says, one will not be justified in God's sight. So then Paul addressed the question that his Jewish opponents would raise. Again, remember, Paul is, is going back and forth with this imaginary objector uh, to make a point. And what he would expect to be raised was that if all they were putting their hope in to escape God's judgment was a false hope, and that included being called a Jew, that included being circumcised and, and possessing the written law that was handed down to them by Moses, then one might conclude that Paul was saying that there was no advantage in being a Jew and there was no value in circumcision. So what would be the point? But Paul was not saying those things at all. And he gave at least one up to this point in the letter. He gave one specific advantage that the Jews had. And that is, the Jews were entrusted with the words of God. They were entrusted with God's special revelation, specifically referring to the Old Testament and all the promises and the plan of salvation that's found there. But when the kickback that Paul brought up, that he expected his opponents would say, uh, the kickback to, to, being, to having the advantage of having God's special revelation in the Old Testament was that what if they were unfaithful to it? What if they were unfaithful to the responsibility that came along with those promises and, and having God's word? Would that cancel out God's faithfulness? But Paul showed that that is not true. That no matter what, no matter what his people do or anyone else in the world, no matter what happens, God will always be faithful to what he said he will do. He will fulfill his promises to Israel to bless them and make them a blessing. He will fulfill the promise of land and the kingdom that he promised to them. But God would also judge their disobedience, which he also said he would do. So even when he judges, he is doing what he said he would do. He is being faithful. And so as we left off last time, seeing that their sin would be judged by God, and therefore God would show himself to be righteous in judging their sin, from Paul making that point, another question then is raised. Another objection. And so we continue in this subsection that we started last week. 
uh, this section that we broke into two parts, as many commentators say that this is at least the hardest section in Romans, maybe some argue the hardest passage in all of the New Testament. And so we wanted to break it down and go through it slowly. And so we, we're going to focus here on the second part in verses 5 through 8. But, but to get a running start into it and to remember the context, let's, let's read the whole section. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So if you would, read along as I read it out loud. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So again, as we saw last week, that there, there is an advantage to being a Jew. Uh, there is profit in circumcision. And God is faithful to do all that he said he would do, whether it's to bless or whether it's to bring his judgment when he said he would. And all that then, Paul makes his point clear and, and defends his point by quoting from Psalm 51, verse 4, as we went over last week. Remember, he, he quotes that psalm, quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he shows that God is indeed just when he judges. And so despite man's faithlessness, God remains faithful and is even showing his faithfulness and his justice in dealing with man's sin and unfaithfulness. And so Psalm 51 verse 4 shows this as it demonstrates that God is seen to be just through his judgment of sin, even the sin of his chosen people. Because uh, remember, what's in view there in Psalm 51 is the sin of King David. So then the question then is raised by this imaginary opponent, uh, this kickback against what Paul taught, is basically saying, Paul, if you say that everything about our Judaism, what we put our hope in, will not actually cause us to escape God's wrath, and by God pouring out his wrath on us, he will demonstrate he is just then doesn't that mean God is glorified through our sin as it gives an opportunity to demonstrate his justice? So if our sin is an opportunity for God's justice to be on display, isn't that ultimately a good thing? And if so, how can God on the day of wrath, in the end, condemn us under his wrath when our sin has brought about a good thing? Wouldn't that be unjust? So that, that's basically the kickback here. That ultimately, in God pouring out his wrath, and God judging, ultimately he would actually be unjust if our sin brought about a, a good thing. Now, I think we can easily see the hole in that argument, right? Again, that if our sin shows God to be just because he judges our sin, and so he's glorified as the just God that he is, 
How can he then judge us in our sin if through it he's glorified? But what do we have to ask? Well, if he doesn't judge our sin, because judging our sin shows him to be just, which is a good thing, (laughs) so then doesn't judge our sin, then he's not shown to be just, right? He has to judge our sin to show him to be just. If he doesn't, he's not just. He's not the God that he's revealed himself to be. So there's a major hole in this logic here, in this kickback. So he must inflict his wrath or he's not just. And so really what we see here is the objector gets himself all tangled up in all kinds of illogical webs and arguments, all for the sake of justifying himself and showing, therefore, that Paul is wrong. Now, again, I I think maybe you can see here why this might be the hardest passage in Romans. It's just because of the, the, Paul's addressing this illogical argument, and and so it makes it a little hard to follow Paul's train of thought here. God must judge, and in doing so shows himself to be just. So yes, a good thing occurs. But that doesn't mean then he's unjust for judging, or else he would not be shown to be just, and therefore no good thing would occur. He must judge. And so we see, again, the objector makes a leap in logic in order to go against Paul's teaching. Really, this is a straw man argument. And a strong man is a common way of of arguing against something that you really have no argument for. It's a way of defeating your opponent when you really have no way of defeating him. See, because what you do, a straw man argument, is when you make, uh, build a case against an argument, against a position that purposely misrepresents that position in order to defeat it. And when it comes to the truth of the gospel and the truth of God, mankind will hold to straw man arguments in order to give an excuse not to believe. Because men are looking for reasons to hold on to their sin because they love their sin. Remember, we saw in chapter 1 that despite God revealing himself through creation, man suppresses the truth of God in their unrighteousness. And what we read here, uh, the straw man argument, this is a way of suppressing the truth of God. And that's the state that mankind is in. And so man will wrap himself up in all kinds of leaps of logics and endless bounds of ignorance in order to justify himself. Because naturally people hate God because naturally people love their sin. And that's true of all of us. And so really the only hope of salvation for anyone is for God to sovereignly intervene. Only by God intervening, only by his work for us and in us to bring us to repentance and faith, can anyone be saved and not continue to suppress the truth? And this will become all the more clear as we continue through Romans. But again, God is just to punish sin and pour out his eternal wrath on the day of wrath in final judgment. God is certainly just to punish sin. And it's true, God will be glorified in everything. 
even our sin. But that doesn't mean then that God is promoting sin. He's not encouraging it, which is, in some sense, where the argument ends up going here. No, for he is holy, and he hates all that stands in opposition to his holiness. It's like one pastor said, the fact that God overrules even wrong mistakes, even our sin, is a tribute to his glory. It is not a loophole for our rebellion. Because God is holy. He calls all those who he has made his own to holiness. And he will judge sinners by his holy standard. And so we need to be careful what conclusions we draw. If we ever draw a conclusion that contradicts Scripture, that does not show God to be holy and just as he is, then our conclusion is wrong. Whatever ideas we have, whatever belief, whatever doctrine about God that justifies sin, that idea, that belief is wrong. That doctrine is wrong. You see, George Whitfield was exactly right when he said... It is an undoubtable truth that every doctrine that comes from God leads to God, and that which doth not tend to promote holiness is not of God. And so Paul makes it clear here that this argument comes from human reasoning. This is a a faulty human argument. And so again, Paul's response to this accusation which is essentially saying God is not just in pouring out his wrath on people, specifically on the Jews. Paul's response to the accusation is to say, by by no means, by no means should you think this way. And this is the same wording that we saw in verse 4, where we pointed out that this phrase is meant to show the strongest denial of something. Paul is saying that this is absolutely not the case. It is absolutely not true to say God is unjust for pouring out his judgment. Paul is saying in these words, uh, you should put that as far from your thinking as possible. It's so wrong and so such evil thinking. Don't even think such a thing. Now, should that be Paul's response to their teaching? Or should Paul respond a different way? Maybe Paul should have thought, if people draw wrong conclusions or are able to twist my teaching and say God would be unjust to pour out his wrath on the Jews in the final day, then maybe maybe what I need to do is adjust my teaching. Maybe that's what Paul should have thought. Or even, too, as we've been studying through Acts in Sunday school, and we've seen the division that took place between Jews and Gentiles in the early church over the gospel— Maybe Paul should have thought, since this is such a divisive teaching, maybe, maybe I shouldn't teach it. Should that have been Paul's response? No, clearly not. Just because someone may draw wrong conclusions or twist what we say does not mean that we change what we hold to and what we teach. If what we hold to and what we teach is the truth of God's word. Now, we should ask ourselves, are people drawing wrong conclusions because we're not being clear? Uh, That's a totally other issue. And we should ask ourselves that. And and if that's the case, then maybe there is something to adjust to be more clear, but not to change the content of what we're teaching. We stand on the truth of God's word. 
We always hold to that truth. Even if people twist what we're saying and create straw man arguments. And this happens. We should be prepared for that. People build straw man arguments against where we stand, against the truth of God's word all the time. Like when we take a moral stand that goes against the cultural norms. And we call sin what God's word calls sin. And we do so in calling the world around us to repentance as someone so lovingly called us to repentance. In our day, to call sin, sin, the world calls us hateful and can even call us bigots. But again, that's not true. That's a leap in logic. Or when we believe even something as simple as the fact that God created the universe in six literal days, as God's word in Genesis clearly says. And people say, oh, you're, science, you're a science denier. Which I have feelings on that and have a temptation to get on a, a, a little soapbox there, but I should limit myself to one soapbox a month. So I already did one last week, so I'm going to hold it back. But even as we discuss God's sovereignty, including his sovereignty and salvation, uh, people will claim that that teaches that people, uh, people are, are really just no more than robots then. And, and then they are judged for choices that they, they really are not responsible for. That's not what God's sovereignty teaches. That's not what we're saying. That's an erroneous conclusion. And there are those who take the gospel of grace and claim that it teaches... Because of that teaching, that, that's why they reject Christianity. Because since the gospel is not about what you or I do, but it's all about Jesus, who is good for us, who paid for our sin for us, then it stands to reason, according to them, one can remain as wicked and heartless as they've always been, one can continue to mistreat people, and still be saved and right in God's sight as long as they trust in Jesus. But we've seen, especially over the last two Sundays, that those who are saved by grace actually do not remain the same. But they progress in putting off sin more and more. They grow in holiness. Far from the gospel okaying people in their sin, the gospel actually calls people out of their sin. In the gospel, there is the command to repent. We see that those who are truly saved progress, again, in holiness. But you know what? All of this is doctrine. And people don't like doctrine. Right? There are those who say, don't, don't teach doctrine. Doctrine divides. You, sh- you shouldn't teach doctrine. Well, tell that to Paul. I mean, look at Romans especially, but all of Paul's teaching, it's all full of Doctrine. I mean, doctrine is teaching, so what else do you teach? Well, you really should just be a, a more of a, a life application kind of preacher. Well, if you're not teaching doctrine, what are you applying? What gets applied to life? Well, the teachings of God's Word, which is doctrine. Again, 
an illogical web of nonsense. I, I do appreciate John MacArthur's response to, to when people say, don't teach doctrine, doctrine divides. He said, doctrine does divide. It divides the truth from error. And he's exactly right. We need to teach doctrine. We need to proclaim it. We need to hold to it. And so we see here, Paul's response is exactly right. He's telling them, no, do not accept such ridiculous conclusions. Don't even let your mind go there. That's not true. Paul was unmoved, and we should be too. God will judge even the Jews who break his law, and God is just to do so. And this must be the case, as Paul points out, and it it's must be the case, as, as Paul points out, the Jew actually knows it must be the case. Because if God shouldn't judge the Jew, and if to do so would ultimately be unjust, then Paul asks, for then how could God judge the world? The Jew believed, as we pointed out not too long ago, that the Jew believed that the day would come when God would pour out his judgment on the rest of the world, on the Gentiles. We even saw an example of that in the passage we read in Isaiah just a little bit ago. They believed that and they knew it. But let's think about this. If God poured out his wrath on the Gentiles because of the Gentile sin, then God would be just in pouring out his wrath. And therefore, it's an opportunity for God to put his justice on display in punishing the sin of the Gentiles. Therefore, ultimately, the sin of the Gentiles brought about something good. It brought about God's glory as a just God. Because it gave them the opportunity to show that justice in punishing their sin. So it brought about a good. And so if it brought about a good, is God really just in judging the Gentile? See, that's what the Jew is arguing here in this text. But he's only applying it to himself. And saying, you know, God should judge the Gentile. But is God just in judging me, the Jew, if my sin brought about something good? See, if you're going to use that line of argument, you need to be consistent in using that line of argument. If it's not true for you, the Jew, then it's not true for the Gentile either. You need to understand that. You need to be consistent. God is just in pouring out his wrath on the Jew and Gentile alike. And when he does, he will demonstrate that he is truly a righteous judge. So if it's true for the Jew, it's also true for the Gentile. Otherwise, how could God judge the world? How could he judge anybody? Now, as Paul makes this argument, he clearly expects another follow-up to this argument, another rebuttal. And what he expects, as you read it here, is a, a clarifying point. And whether he expects that because he knows himself, before he was saved, you remember as we talked last time, who is this imaginary objector based on? If it's because he knows himself and how he would have responded before he knew Christ, or whether he knows this should be the response because of how he was responded to when he would preach in the synagogues. In any case, he expects there to be a clarifying point to follow what he says here. He expects the objector to say, Okay, Paul, I don't think you're getting it. Let me try it from a different angle. 
Verse 7, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So before the argument focused on God and why he shouldn't, in the end, condemn. But here the focus is on the sinner, specifically a liar. Should the lie be condemned as should the liar be condemned as a sinner? if by his lying, God's truth is made all the more clear. So again, what was wrong brought about something good, so should it really be considered wrong? And what's the answer? Yes, yes it should. The outcome does not make something right. The ends do not justify the means. Again, just because God uses it for good is, as we've already stated, a testament to his glory. It's just because, because God is so great and so glorious that he could take something that is itself evil and use it for good. That's a testament to how good he is. It's not a testament to that thing not actually being so evil or a way to justify it. And so just because the example is specifically of a liar... We follow that example and show you can't justify lying. God hates lying. As it stands in opposition to his very nature and character. Right? What did Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth. And what does Revelation tell us about him? That he is faithful and true. This is his nature. This is his character. And he hates all that stands in opposition to his character. He is holy. We read in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And this proverb saying that, there are six, and then saying there's seven. Uh, that's a way of showing that this is not an exhaustive list. But do we see how lying is listed among these things that God hates? He absolutely hates. They're an abomination to him. Lying is an abomination. Yet you and I so easily justify lying, don't we? it's only a little white lie. I'm not, I'm not really hurting anybody. Everybody lies. Right? Everyone lies. Yeah, apart from God's grace, everyone is damned in their sin, too. So, what about it? God hates lying. Revelation 21.8 says all liars will have their place in the lake of fire. And we should look at Proverbs 6 here in this list. And the list there that lying is found in in Revelation 21.8. See the kind of list that lying is part of. We can't justify lying just as we cannot justify any other sin. Yet, As the rebuttal goes here, 
if good comes out of it, if in the end God is glorified, why should the sinner be condemned? And then verse 8 continues this, saying, why not just keep sinning? Why, why not do evil that good may come? Which really results then in throwing out God's law. It results in being an antinomian. And there were those who accused Paul of throwing out the teaching of the law. He says here, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. But that's not what Paul taught. Nor was it the logical conclusion to what Paul taught. And again, there are similar charges against Christianity and the truth of God's word today. Some run with the gospel to absurd conclusions. That if we are under grace, not law, as Paul does say later in Romans, then that means it doesn't matter how I live. It's all grace. It's nothing to do with what I do. So since it's all about Jesus and who he is and what he has done, which it is, but if it's all of that, then, then whether or not I still love my sin and live in sin is of no consequence, just as long as I have faith. Right? It's all grace. A call to repentance, that, that, that's just legalism, man. Come on. You talk about the commands of Scripture, stop being a fundy. A fundamentalist. That's not the gospel. And so to those outside the church, those who do not make any sort of profession of faith, some say they reject Christianity because the gospel gives someone a reason to continue in their sin, a, con- a reason to be a horrible person and mistreat people as long as they are saved by grace. But that's not really the gospel. No more than it was not what Paul was teaching and saying when he was accused of the fact of God not being just to judge. That's not what Paul was saying. It's no less true than the accusation against Paul's teaching that that he was saying that he should do good or do evil that good may come. Just keep sinning. No, God is just. And he will deal justly with every sin. He will deal justly with your sin and my sin. And as we've mentioned several times, he either has dealt with your sin in the person of Jesus Christ, as he has for all who believe in Christ, or he will deal with it in you who do not believe. And he'll deal with it in you for all eternity. Hebrews 9.27 says, For it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that face the judgment. There is real judgment and real wrath to face because of our sin. And the only way to face that wrath is to suffer under it for all eternity. Because we've earned an infinite wrath. Because our sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. But for you who believe on Christ, and in Christ alone to save you, you will find that Christ has satisfied that wrath in his infinite person while he was on the cross. He satisfied God's justice in place of all who would believe on him. He faced it for us, so we would never have to face it. 
My friends, believe on Jesus Christ, believe on Christ alone, and you will be saved. And brothers and sisters, you who are trusting in Christ for your salvation, remember what this passage is all about from verses 1 through 8 here in chapter 3. It's showing us the faithfulness of God to do all that he said he would do, whether it's to bless or it's to judge. He's going to do what he said he will do. And therefore, that means we can trust him. Even when people put words in our mouths and misrepresent us, we can trust him. We can trust his justice. For example, later in Romans, Paul will remind us of God's words in Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. Matter of fact, we're not to take matters into our own hands. We can trust all of it to the Lord, knowing, as Paul makes very clear here in verse 8, their condemnation is just. God will deal justly with those who misrepresent his truth and his word, and so misrepresent his people who proclaim his truth and have committed themselves to his word. We can trust God will do what he says he will do. And so continue to faithfully proclaim his word and not take matters into our own hands. We can trust God to take care of of justice for us, just as we can trust God to maintain that justice, the justice that was against us, has been satisfied for us. So even as we struggle with sin, and even if there's times when you find yourself flat on your face in your sin, my friends, you can repent right away, right in that moment, and go straight to God, believing He is faithful. Believing when you come and confess your sin, He will just, He will, He is just, no, sorry. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I was trying to say. <laughs> We can rest in Christ. But not only has he died to settle our debt, the payment of our sin, but he has risen again to forever intercede for us. And he saves us to the uttermost. He's our representative before the Father. And as long as the Father loves Christ, Christ who is our representative, he's going to love us. We are secure in him. And so, brothers and sisters, rest in him. Know your salvation is secure in him, who so loved you that he gave himself for you. And so as you lean on him for your eternal life and for the rescue from judgment that you have earned in your sin, as you trust in him for your growth and holiness and sanctification, trust in him for his promises, even for the life in the here and now. I mean, really, it doesn't make any sense. If we can trust him for our eternal life, why can't we trust him for our life right now? And yet, how many things in our life right now do we get so bent out of shape about and so worried about, but he's already taking care of the bigger thing? If we can trust him for our, our eternal life, we can trust him for the life now, this temporary life. It only makes sense. So trust him. Know he is faithful. He will do all that he said he will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. 
We're so thankful that you have revealed yourself as faithful and have done so in so many ways throughout the scriptures, throughout all of your workings in the life of of your people Israel, in our individual lives, throughout church history, in in us now today. You've demonstrated time and time again how faithful you are to fulfill your promises, to do all that you've said, which includes judgment. And so, Father, we thank you that Christ has taken the judgment upon himself for all of us who believe. That he has satisfied our debt that was against you because of our sin. And that because of Christ, before you, we are holy and just. And so, Father, we pray that we would trust you as you continue to grow us in that holiness. And whatever you decide to bring into our lives and and the different people around us that you choose to use and whatever it is, according to your plan, that you will grow us in holiness. And Father, that you will do all that you've said. And so that we can trust you for justice in this world and in our personal lives. and, And we can trust, Lord, that in the end, you will be seen as holy and just. And so, Father, I pray that now you would empower us to live our lives, to demonstrate in everything we do, that you are holy and just. I thank you. Amen.